Can emotions set loose by the victim of an undiscovered murder be projected into the mind of an uninvolved party, calling out for discovery of the crime? This is Mark Lyon. Welcome to The Other Realm. Throughout my life, I have collected true accounts left to us by those who have inadvertently crossed the invisible threshold from our world into the realm of the supernatural and returned to tell the tale. These are their stories. A ghost story of an unusual nature unfolded during the period following the California gold rush in a house now long gone in a Spanish settlement which then flourished on San Francisco's Russian Hill. A heavy layer of dust and a garden choked with long Australian vines suggested that the large, elegantly furnished house had not been occupied for some time when Mary Attis, a widow with three young children moved into the house and set up business as a washerwoman. The inexplicably low rent and strange earthy smell about the house added an air of apprehension to what otherwise would have seemed the answer to her prayers. In her bedroom stood a stately walnut bed, along with a wardrobe, and chests of drawers filled to capacity with beautiful Spanish clothing. Despite the splendid furnishings and a breathtaking view of the bay, there was, however, something depressing about the house, an unshakable feeling of dread. When she asked her neighbors and those who had lived there before about her home, she was told only that it was a very bad house. Not long afterward, her children began to speak of the lady, a proud, slender woman with shining black hair who wore a Spanish dress and who would often mysteriously appear in the house and garden. The woman, who never spoke a word, was no one they had ever seen in the neighborhood. It would not be long before Mrs. Addis also saw the lady. One evening, upon returning home from shopping, she saw the woman standing in her doorway. Frightened, she dropped a parcel she had been carrying. She looked down for only a moment to pick up her package. When she looked back up again, the lady had vanished. On another evening, she again observed the same woman standing in the garden. Then, a few nights later, she heard a plaintive moan. As her two youngest children had just recently recovered from a fever, she ran to their room in alarm. The children, however, were sleeping soundly. She heard the moan again. Only this time, it sounded as if it had come from her own bedroom. When she opened the door... She saw a young woman in a Spanish dress desperately attempting to rise from the large bed. Her face was wrenched in pain and terror. Standing over her was a man who threw her back down onto the bed and began to beat her savagely. 
Mrs. Addis attempted to run to the woman's defense, but as she took her first steps into the room, everything went black, and she fell to the floor. She had no idea how long she had lain there unconscious, but when she awoke, the woman was gone. She watched as the man pulled up a section of matting covering the floor to reveal a large hole which had been previously dug in the earth. By the bed was a large narrow box, which he then dropped down into the hole. Again, everything turned to darkness, and when she next awoke, she found herself in bed suffering from a fever. As soon as she was well enough, Mrs. Addis sent for Isaiah W. Lees, police captain of detectives. The lady, Lees was to discover, was not a ghost at all but the sister of a woman named Carmen, who had lived in the house prior to Mrs. Addis, and had, some time back, disappeared without a trace. The lady admitted to having often visited the house in the hope of finding some clue as to Carmen's fate. Lees had three officers tear up the matting on the bedroom floor as well as the boards beneath, and there they found a long box matching exactly the one Mrs. Addis had in her vision seen buried. Upon opening the box, they found the body of a young woman wearing a Spanish dress. Her face had been obliterated with slacked lime. Examination by the coroner revealed that she had been beaten and buried alive. An even more startling experience along these lines was recounted by an engineer who, on the evening of December 24, 1928, found himself bicycling toward Toledo, Spain, with a friend and fellow engineer named Victor Legrand. When, around 6 p.m., it started to snow, the two men decided they had best look for shelter. It was not long before they saw light off in the distance, and heading in the direction of the light, they at last came upon a large house and tried the vintage bell pole several times. When no one came to the door, they wondered if the house might be abandoned and tried the door handle. The door easily opened, and the two men entered an impressive hall. A generous black oak staircase leading onto a gallery loomed before them, and from a passageway off to one side of the hall, they heard what sounded like the soft strains of music. Following the sound of the music, they soon discovered a room set up as a small theater. A dozen or so musicians sat before a green curtain playing stringed instruments for an audience dressed in old-fashioned clothing. The music stopped for a moment, and the curtain rose to reveal a stage upon which an exquisitely lovely young woman in ballet attire, ornamented with jewels, entered and began to dance. Though beautiful, there was something frightening in the way her unnaturally pale, almost white 
face stood out against the deep red of her lips and her bejeweled dark hair. One traditional Spanish dance quickly followed another as the audience watched in eerie silence, none of them making the slightest movement. It was during the fifth dance that the two men noticed a man attired in Spanish dress of the mid-1800s standing in the wings. He wore gold earrings and a gold-embroidered sash. His hair and thick sideburns were dark, but like the dancer, his face was deathly white. The man stared at the dancer with a sinister expression of such hate and evil that it defied adequate description. The dancer left the stage and soon reappeared in the guise of a skeleton. The dance of death, the conductor of the orchestra intoned in a grave manner as the dancer stepped into the spotlight and began a strange dance, almost a duet, in which she seemed to try to passionately embrace and kiss her own shadow, only to draw back at times in terror. Then something glinted bright in the hands of the man in the wings, a knife flew through the air, striking the dancer in the breast. An horrific scream issued from the dancer. Out went the lights, followed by a crescendo of demonic laughter rising from the audience. The two men fled the house in horror. Fortunately, by now, the snow had stopped, and they were able to resume their journey to Toledo. When, the next day, they told their story to the owner of their hotel in Toledo, he was not in any way surprised. Everyone knows about that house, he responded in a most serious manner. It is known as the House of Black Death. A long time ago, it was owned by an extremely wealthy merchant who enjoyed presenting dramatic and musical entertainments in the house, featuring the finest musicians, actors, and dancers to be found throughout Europe. He fell in love with a dancer of extraordinary skill and beauty, enticing the object of his obsession to stay by bestowing upon her every imaginable gift. One day, however, the dancer's husband, who had long been searching for her, learned of her whereabouts, made his way into the house, and killed her as she performed her most celebrated dance, the dance of death. The man then killed himself. The merchant could no longer bear to live in the house, and as it gained such an evil reputation that no one could be induced to live in it, he finally had it demolished. But that can't be, said one of the men. We were in that house last night. Do not take my word for it, signors, responded the innkeeper. Go back to the place where you found the house, and you will see the truth for yourselves. Last night, the 24th of December, was the anniversary of the night of the murder. It is only on that one night each year, and for that one night only, that the house reappears. 
The two men could not possibly believe such an incredible story and cycled back to the place where they had entered the house. Despite carefully searching the entire area, they could not find even the slightest trace of the house. The prodigious chronicler of the paranormal, Elliot O'Donnell, once related our final story to the English ghost hunter Peter Underwood. A true story told to him by his grandmother concerning an orphan by the name of Amelia Jenkins who worked as a maid for a Mrs. Bishop, a wealthy widow living in the Irish city of Cork. Each day, after her morning coffee, Mrs. Bishop, dressed in the height of fashion, would leave the house for town, where she spent the day in Cork's most elegant hotels and shops. Always fascinated by her mistress's clothes, one morning, thinking she was alone, Amelia dared to hold a particularly lovely red dress up to herself and was dreamily gazing at her reflection in the mirror when her employer unexpectedly appeared and tore the dress from Amelia's hands. How dare you, Mrs. Bishop screamed, her eyes glaring with anger and betraying a capacity for unimaginable cruelty Amelia could never forget. If you ever touch any of my clothes again, I shall beat you she warned the girl as she whisked the dress off to an always locked room. During the hours Mrs. Bishop spent away from the house, Amelia and Andy O'Leary, a boy employed to do odd jobs, indulged in speculation as to their employer's secrets. They learned from the milkman that Mr. Bishop had been a wealthy man of leisure with white hair clearly much older than his wife. They also learned that the couple always spent their winters in the south of France, and it was while they were abroad one year that Mr. Bishop had died and had been buried in France. Then, one night, Amelia dreamed that she saw Mrs. Bishop enter the drawing room and cross to the fireplace where she pressed her hand against something which revealed a small hidden hollow space in the wall from which she removed a key. Mrs. Bishop then proceeded with the key to the room to which she had taken the red dress. Using the key, she unlocked the door. The door opened. Amelia caught sight of a large four-poster bed as she attempted to follow Mrs. Bishop into the room. In an instant, the door slammed shut, leaving Amelia in the hallway. She heard the clinking of coins coming from inside the room. She pressed one eye to the keyhole. Immediately, she felt something hot strike her eye, something so hot that it awakened her from her dream. Upon telling Andy about her dream, they became convinced that an enormous hoard of money must be hidden in the locked room, and they became obsessed with the idea of breaking into the room, stealing the money, and running away together to find a better life. 
From time to time, Amelia attempted to find the key, but each time as she approached the drawing room, she would lose her nerve upon hearing mysterious raps or what she feared might be footsteps behind her. Finally, one morning Mrs. Bishop announced that she would not be returning to the house until that evening, and Amelia found the nerve to enter her mistress's bedroom and play dress-up, donning a silk dress, high-heeled French boots, and a pretty hat, even going so far as to apply some rouge to her cheeks. Emboldened by Andy's reaction to her appearance, Amelia and Andy entered the drawing-room, and pushing against a board near the fireplace, Amelia succeeded in opening up a hidden space in which she found the key she had seen in her dream. The two wasted no time in running upstairs to the locked room. Amelia placed the key into the lock and carefully turned the key. The bolt flew back, and she opened the door. They entered the room. Amelia must have gasped as she beheld the same four-poster bed she had seen in her dream. Also in the room were two elaborately carved chairs, a large mirror in a gilt frame, and in the corner of the room, a sturdy safe. Amelia could not resist the temptation to gaze in admiration at the reflection of herself in Mrs. Bishop's finery in the mirror. Andy, standing close behind her, gazing at her reflection as well. Then their gaze turned to the reflection of the bed behind them. An old man with white hair and mustache inexplicably appeared in the bed, lying on his back, sleeping. A door opened, and from within the doorway entered a woman in a blue evening dress glittering with extravagant jewelry. The woman silently crossed the room to the bed, picked up a pillow, and with a look of cruelty Amelia had seen before, the woman, Mrs. Bishop, forcefully pressed the pillow down onto the sleeping man's face. Amelia screamed, and the ghostly images vanished. There could be no doubt as to what had happened. Mrs. Bishop had smothered her husband in that bed, and somehow they had seen a ghostly reenactment of the murder. There was no time to lose. Amelia raced to the safe and somehow discovered a secret device which, when pressed, threw open the safe's door. Amelia gasped. The safe was filled with gold coins and sumptuous jewelry. Amelia quickly began to thrust rings on each of her fingers and to bedeck herself with as many necklaces and bracelets as possible. Thief! cried out a voice as Mrs. Bishop appeared in the doorway. Not a ghost, but Mrs. Bishop in the flesh, attired as she had been when she left the house earlier that morning. As Mrs. Bishop, seething with anger, stood motionless, glaring at Amelia, Andy was able to quickly pass unseen behind the open door where he remained in hiding. Mrs. Bishop demanded that Amelia return the jewelry to the safe. 
No sooner had this been done than she stripped all of her finery from Amelia and, catching her by the wrist, pulled the crying girl from the room, down the staircase, out of the house, and through the darkened streets of Cork to the nearby River Lee, where she thrust Amelia into the interior of a small yacht which was moored there. All this we know, as Andy had followed the two unseen from a safe distance behind. Andy watched in horror through a porthole as Mrs. Bishop threw Amelia to the floor, drew a wire round her neck, and slowly pulled at its ends until the struggling girl fell limp and dropped dead before her mistress's feet. Not knowing what to do, Andy raced back to the house and tried his best to act as though nothing had happened. A little later, Mrs. Bishop arrived back at the house, appearing calm, nothing about her demeanor giving the slightest hint as to the drama which had just occurred. Amelia has run away, she told Andy, but she will no doubt be back in due course. She has done this before. Andy mulled over what he should do for two weeks. What could he do? There were no relatives to come looking for her. Amelia would not be missed, and the authorities, he reasoned, would never take his word over that of a great lady such as Mrs. Bishop. Finally, however, he disclosed the truth to Elliot O'Donnell's grandmother, a woman for whom he had occasionally performed small tasks. Although she was at first inclined to disbelieve such a wild tale, she reported his story to the police, who interviewed both Andy and Mrs. Bishop. In the end, they accepted Mrs. Bishop's assertion that Amelia had simply run away again. Weeks passed before poor Amelia's body was discovered in the river, by now too decomposed to offer any clues as to how she had met her fate. But from that time on, the ghost of an ill-clad girl with a ghastly white bloated face and eyes frozen in terror has been reported to haunt the banks of the River Lee. <laughs> The Other Realm is a production of Wind Whistle Theatre. Our music was composed by Dan Heflin. Support for The Other Realm has been provided by HauntedIsles.com, offering private and small group tours of haunted Britain and Ireland, and by Wind Whistle Press, publishers of everything you ever wanted to know about ghosts but were afraid to ask by Mark Lyon and San Francisco Ghosts by Mark Lyon and Jesse Adelaide Middleton's classic trilogy of true tales of the supernatural, The White Ghost Book, The Grey Ghost Book, and its sequel, Another Grey Ghost Book, and Lep Castle, The House of Horrors, by Mildred Darby, and by Heftone Studios, producers of Phantoms of the Holbrook, 
a docudrama relating true events occurring at what well may be the most haunted hotel in the entire world, and Natalie, a modern retelling of the German legend of the Lorelei.